0: You're listening to Enabled, a podcast brought to you by Ability Advocators. How's that? Oh, I got a big graph. You got a big one. Oh, look at my ECG. Look at that. Ding. (laughs) (laughs) This could go anywhere. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. We've never met. This could go anywhere. This is Uh, how I teach.
1: Great. (laughs) Wow. I told you he was
0: a very good teacher from a student's point of view, possibly not
1: the organisational point of view. Awesome. Okay. Very exciting. Hello and welcome to Enable, the podcast where we talk about, normalize, and celebrate disability and mental health. And we've got Luke Taylor on the show today. Hi, Luke. Hi. Thanks for being here.
0: Oh, uh, my pleasure.
1: I'm actually I'm really excited that you're here because Colin and I were talking this week and we realized something about our podcast that has sort of been going on without us noticing, but is potentially a bit of an unhelpful kind of lean that we've had. We've had about 14 episodes released so far. And with the exception of one, every single one of our guests have been women. The one man that we have had, Dennis Owen, he was fantastic, but he wasn't planned, was he? No, he wasn't. It was an unexpected sort of like off the cuff, let's interview Dennis. I've been actually really thinking about why it is that we really haven't actually had any men on the show so far. I'm just going to put an idea out there and see what you guys think of it. Maybe one of the reasons is because we, men, women, everyone, I think we we actually find it harder to talk about men's mental health. What do you think?
0: Completely. It is a, It's a very difficult thing. It's something in our upbringing yeah. uh, that almost precludes us from talking about it, whether it's this stoicism that yeah. we have to go to work, we have to keep battling, we have to be strong, all of those stereotypes that are present. And you're right too because obviously I'm married and I've got a daughter and I'm very aware of you know, images for for girls and for women and things right. like that. But there's so many issues out there for boys and yeah. blokes as well that we fight against yeah. mm. um, silently, you yeah. know, throughout my whole life. Like I've had some incidents in my past where I've just been screaming out for help but in my head but right. did not know how to actually verbalise or vocalise that.
1: Another reason why I think you're a great candidate to be here and to be talking about men's mental health is because I imagine – that you've had almost an amplified experience of the difficulty that we can have with men's mental health because you're in the police force for 14 years. And that real sort of warrior mindset of like I'm running to the danger and everyone else is running away, and that kind of collective identity, I imagine it's really hard to create a culture of vulnerability.
0: Yes, completely. And and my upbringing never actually set me up that way either. My father was just uh, an absolutely beautiful, brilliant man, um, very demonstrative, affectionate and would cry.
1: Really unusual for that generation.
0: Oh, completely, yeah. yeah. So I was raised and had to have all these open talks with Dad, so I was always prepared on that level to be a little bit open and, mm. and be vulnerable. But I remember as a, when I first got to Blacktown, there was a couple of police who were off long-term sick mm. and then one of them would come back and didn't quite work out. And it was like they had a disease, and it was almost like you could catch it. Yeah, and, and you'd withdraw from that, and it was never spoken about. If you were in a position where you went off on sick leave, mm-hmm. you weren't contacted. There was a lack of support and things like that. So yeah. it was quite a very challenging issue, not just yeah. for men but for for women as well.
1: For sure, yeah, but, absolutely. I'm curious as to how, I mean, you mentioned that you, had, you were, were raised almost counterculturally with a father who was very emotionally literate. And then, you know, after the police force, you went into this very sort of creative side of things. What was the appeal of, of joining the police force for you?
0: I just wanted action and fun and adventure. <laughs> yep. um, hey, I was studying economics at uni at the time, so um, anything had to be uh, <laughs> a bit more, actually, bit more yeah. exciting yeah. than <laughs> uh, some of the stuff we were doing there. But and I just loved the action and the adventure. Mm. And it wasn't until years into the job I started to reflect on the fact that, oh, I'm actually doing some good.
1: Right. And you met your wife actually at the Police Academy, didn't you?
0: We did, yeah. We met on about the first day. We are wow. actually in the same <laughs> subclass. Wow. Um, we were good friends. We were best of mates for quite a number of years before we became romantically involved.
1: Oh, okay, because I know a few couples who have met, it seems like quite a great place to meet people actually, but aren't there some rules about fraternisation while you're at the academy? That was oh, my you not tell me. Nice okay.
0: Not that I did anything. <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: there you go. One of the hallmarks about being a police officer is that that exposure to trauma is immense. What most of us would only experience on the worst day of our lives, the police force are being exposed to just regularly over and over and over again. How does that affect you?
0: It's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. Mm. And, again, everyone has a different point. Mm. And and I felt I actually got to a point I was probably about 10 years in and I, I actually questioned whether I was emotionally cold or, yeah. or why things weren't affecting me. Yeah. And then when I moved to a more Anglo area and there was a couple of significant murders and jobs that I went to there, I had just reached that, that mm-hmm. particular point where my basket was getting full because we're not taught how to actually unburden ourselves. Right. So going back, we used to have, after a serious incident, the police in all their wisdom would bring in a external psychologist mm-hmm. to have a debriefing with everybody that was involved in that major traumatic incident mm. and I remember one particular one in a pretty significant event and murder and every police officer that was involved on the shift that day they said you have to come in on Saturday oh. we're not paying anyone to come in if you want to go <laughs> it's for your own good but we're not paying you overtime to come in you've got to if you've just come off night shift or whatever you've done make your way in.
1: Right, we really so, care about your life. Oh bit. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, And then we sat in there, and we all sitting around a circle. And we're, I'm talking some of the, the the most grizzled, hardened, toughest blokes you've come across. Right. And then you put in this room, and you're a junior detective, and you're sitting there, and your psychologist says, "Okay, let's go around the room. Oh dear. <laughs> who would like to share their feelings <laughs> on what happened?" Oh. And you look at the two blokes next to you who are. Everyone's got their arms crossed in a defensive position yeah. because the police debrief was you go to the pub Yes. Yeah, and yeah. you have a drink, yes. and, but I wasn't a drinker, so that sort of put me a little bit at odds as a traditional yeah. or stereotypical detective anyway, the fact that I didn't buy into into that. I've never been much of a drinker. So we're sitting there looking at ourselves in a debriefing thinking, who's going to be the first <laughs> to speak up? And nobody did. No. So he stands there for 10 minutes just looking at everyone and thinking, this guy is not – he does not understand Bam. what yeah. is going on. Totally. And that was what – if there was a briefing or a debriefing, that's how it happened.
1: Did you find that that culture of drinking, is that as a result of the that sort of subpar mental health culture in the police, is it—is it all sort of intertwined or is it just part of – I don't know. I mean, is it just part of the Australian culture, I guess?
0: Yeah, I was going to say. I, I think it's it's equally as part of yeah. our Australian culture. I've worked in a lot of industries, obviously teaching, I've uh, worked in the building industry. Every place in Australia seems to socialise with alcohol yeah. at varying degrees. The, the police side, different again because it is, it's a bit of a siege mentality. And we used to do night shifts seven nights in a row. So, and it's the one team and then you finish up and you have a drink And you are, you're working in some pretty hairy situations where you do build a really close relationship with those you're working with. If you're not careful, you can lose that outside perspective of the world. And my dad used to say to me, he said, don't ever lose contact with the outside world. He said, you'll Mm. get blinkers and you could see it happening, um, but very hard to stop too. Very hard to stop.
1: How did you deal with that trauma or any of the sort of traumas? Yeah, I didn't. Okay.
0: I didn't. I, I only dealt with it um, when it became such an issue that I had a complete mental breakdown.
1: Yeah, right. So you would be exposed to like a murder or sex crimes for a while. You worked in child protection. Yep. Again, incredibly necessary job, but I can't imagine what that does to your mental health. How long were you in that unit for? Four years. Wow. Is there a lot of turnover? In-
0: huge, huge yeah. amount of turnover. Yeah. And hopefully, I'm hearing that they have put things in place now. Because another half-hearted approach to our mental health was in the child protection sector we had to have quarterly psych appointments. Okay. Uh, I was an independent psychologist. So over the course of probably a year, the psychologist that I was seeing was flagging pretty big warning signs. Yeah, right. But that information doesn't get back to the police. Right. So after I was discharged and medical records and went through that whole procedure. Yeah. I'd say, look, these warning signs, they were being flagged, Mm. but through some sort of privacy thing, they weren't getting through. And I even went to the the police Mm. medical down in Sydney Mm. after um, I had an incident and went off sick and, you know, obviously for safety, you have your firearms taken off you and things like that. And I went down to get cleared to come back to work, told them what was going on and the PMO, the police medical officer, Looked at me and I'm seething with anger and pain and, and all this is coming out. And they said, that's actually a good thing. I said, what do you mean? They said, oh, that's a good thing that you can vent and do that. That's a good sign. I said, can't you see what it's doing to me? No, you're fine. You can have your gun back. Off you go. Oh, wow. Yeah, so straight away I thought, wow, there's something in this system. And you, know, you keep battling on again and you just, yeah, then you get to a point that literally I was awake and I was laying under my bed and couldn't couldn't face the world for A long time there. Wow! If you had the ability to do something now, that would change the way officers can deal with their mental health issues. Or is there something that you would go? You need to do this, police. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I don't think there's one answer. I think it's a a number of things Mm. that have to be put in place because everybody's different. We all know that, like trauma, especially PTSD and those things some of it doesn't manifest immediately Mm, yeah so you've got to do follow-up calls you've got to check in and it it is it's changing the culture so it can't happen fast and this again this is for every industry i'm not Mm, just saying police anymore this is every industry we've got to have a way where we can also do it in a more low key like it's got to be one-on-ones and i know we all have most businesses have employee assistance program where you can get so many appointments to go and speak to somebody and that's a good step but With certain industries, you also need inside knowledge. So you need somebody who is acutely aware of the history of that occupation and how these barriers have developed. You can't come out as a 22-year-old straight out of uni, cheaper psychologists available on, on entry level. So we, we don't have people who understand. Got to have it. There's no one size fits all. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and you do hear this a lot as well when people just become really disillusioned and it becomes the things the thing that breaks you is that secondary trauma that happens when the organisation that you have given so much for and aligned yourself so much with when they mishandle your concern.
0: In the three years it took me to finish up with the police mm. from the time I, was, I first went off sick. And kept trying to come back. I had to tell my story, which, when it was written down as a statement, we're talking about a 50 page statement of all the trauma and what's led up to it. I had to tell my story to 17 different people Why so many? 17 psychologists and psychiatrists because that is the system to just get acknowledged and have somebody actually say, you know what? You genuinely have anxiety and depression right. and PTSD. Yeah. I've since found out. I've done my research. It's it's harmful Mm. having to retell because you have to tell the whole thing. It's not like my regular psych who I'd go to and we'd unpack it bit by bit and who knew my journey and where we were. Yeah. But to sit there and offload that story time and time again and it actually makes that memory stronger.
1: Yeah.
0: It's true. And yet, and I came from an industry where, in child protection, we would interview the child and a Beautifully set up studio, Mm -hmm. and we could play with the kids and try and make it really accommodating. Mm -hmm. And we basically had one crack at it.
1: Yeah, right. To get that evidence, we don't want them to. We don't want
0: to. Yes, it was a joint system, so we had health, we had Department of Community, we had everybody involved in it. Yeah. So it would limit the trauma. Yeah. And yet, on the same side, they treat me like cattle. Yeah. Or a show dog (laughs) kept going to jump through these hoops. It was it was horrible.
1: Did you want to leave the police force at that time?
0: I saw myself as being a commissioner. Yeah. Oh, I look from the moment I joined the police. I, you know, I might laugh about it now, but I absolutely love it, and I still have that passion for the job. Yeah. And everything it is, and what it stands for, and and I've come through the other side now, where I can embrace that, and I'm even making contacts again. People I used to work with. I had a hatred for it, an Mm. absolute hatred, and that was a protection thing and it was (coughs) what had happened to me. And Yeah, I blamed the job. I blamed people in the job. Yeah, it it was horrible.
1: Mm. So when did you know, at what point did you go, well, this is now a problem? What did that sort of progression look like for you?
0: Very early on, when I was at Cabramatta, I was also the uh, union delegate for our station, so I was um, often fighting for the rights of fellow officers and things like that. Yeah. I remember one day just pulling over on the F4 and I was in tears and yeah. I actually cried out in the car, Is when is someone going to stand up for me? Right. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to ask for help. Yeah. I was there helping others, which I suppose is what the police job yeah. is, so we're doing it inside, yeah. but just in that stupid pride. Yeah, you know, is that the pride of a... Yeah, a 23-, 24-year-old uh-huh. guy who um, sees his whole career ahead of him. Yeah. Please. Yeah, and that manifested later in life too, like even in, in, in teaching. I had some hard times in there, you know, and um, yeah, sort of pushes you to, for me, a bit of a workaholic, push harder and harder. And, mm-hmm. and for me, I had this big issue that if I could have that career taken away from me, right, it could happen again yeah. if there's things that are outside of my control mm-hmm. and that just – sent me over the tipping edge. Mental health is something you've got to keep working on. It's like going to the gym. If you stop, your muscles disappear or your fitness goes. You've got to keep working on it. Good times, bad times, when it's least expected. It can just jump up and grab you again. Yeah.
1: So what do you do? What have been the big takeaways for you in terms of how you do protect your mental health now?
0: Look, I still keep in touch with a counsellor, psychologist, Mm -hmm. you know, make three or four appointments a year. Even when I'm feeling great, Yeah, I'll just check in. It's, it's so important. Mm. Um, what's, what's the end result? I don't know. Mm. Um, do we then struggle to get people doing those jobs? Mm. Um, because you go into it, you are aware, and, and the longer you do become aware, and I know you become entrenched in a job and there's um, obviously financial safety and things like that involved with it, um, but at the end of the day, you can make that decision saying this is not for me and walk away. And that's what's actually happening now because the level of training, anyone with a degree thinks, well, I don't need to put up with this. I could perhaps go and do an undergrad for another six or 12 months. And I've got that police degree or I've got, you know, again, that teaching degree and they can easily transfer. They've got the choice. It doesn't doesn't actually help the situation. And again, for those who are still in it, the mental health issues are still there and the problems and the causes are still going to be there.
1: Do we as a community need to do a better job at looking after our police officers?
0: I think everyone in general. Yep. Yeah. We, we've got to look after everyone. Like I said, it's, uh, I, I, don't, I, I know that's my past um, and I've got that inside knowledge with that, but I'm an advocate for, for everyone, everyone's mental health. And now I'm in business. I understand the stresses of, of running a business mm. and, and the things like that. And I know it is getting more out there in the public sphere and, and what you're doing here is absolutely vital. This should be compulsory listening basically for, for everyone. This is the sort of stuff that needs to be on your Netflix, on your TV, mm. um, the reality. Be- and, and this needs to be getting out there for every single person and that's what a community, the community offers support um, yeah. and help and, and we've, we've got to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about, so you did unfortunately have to leave the police and then became a teacher but you have also now founded a sort of experiential learning venture called Crime Story which kind of marries the two. It does, yeah. Yeah, which is very cool. And also, and I'm very interested in the fact that as well like you and Brenda were police officers together and then she became a teacher as well and that you both work presumably in Crime Stories are an element of like the family that works together stays together hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but how did that come about? Did that just sort of organically happen that you both sort of followed the same paths? Or?
0: Yeah, well, I when I first started teaching and it was the most uplifting thing I'd ever felt, I was creative. yeah, And I didn't realise I had all of these ideas and creativity that in a traditional job, you can't think outside the square. And so I found this incredible freedom in teaching, awesome support. And so I'd come home each day and I'd say to Brenda, I said, oh, this is what's happened. And she goes, you know what, I might come down and do a bit of volunteer work. She just fell into it. I must say that you talked to some of the students, including my kids, and nearly <laughs> the first names that come up if you ask them. Who was your favourite teacher? It was you and Brenda. So, um, yeah, just because you were relatable, I think. You were real. I wasn't afraid to talk about having a breakdown and, mm. and having this stuff. And I remember like almost from day one I'd have kids hang back after recess and say, oh, man, I can't believe you said that. I'm going through some, some stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah, I just had to own it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I now see the, the benefits of that.
1: How did you build yourself back up after the breakdown to the point where you could be people's favourite teacher effectively?
0: I had this family and had to get them through, so I had to hold it together mm. as much as I could for them. That probably just delayed a little bit. the the true depth of what I needed to go through to recover. But that was what gave me focus. For the moment, Brenda and I actually got together. The job sort of was starting to be pushed into the background then. I realised, man, this is so much bigger. This is life. And so I was breaking away from that career identity. So that helped in that process. Plus your constant therapy and things like that. And then perhaps you know the, the biggest awakening obviously was finding God for me was the clincher in the, in the whole deal. Yeah, right. Uh, I'd been to some pretty hairy jobs in the years leading up to that. There was a, a murder by some devil worshippers and things like that uh-huh. and I just saw some stuff and mm. that I couldn't wow. explain yeah. and I needed to get deeper. And, and when I was off sick, I said to Brenda one day, I said, oh, there's that funny bookshop in town that just sells <laughs> Bibles. I said, do you reckon you could go and get me one?
1: <laughs> you couldn't even get it yourself. <laughs>
0: oh, no. <laughs> Can't walk in there. Send the wife, <laughs> wife in. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that and that led to that. So um, that that was the biggest thing that has got me to where I'm at today.
1: So family and faith.
0: Family and faith. Yeah, yeah,
1: amazing. So talk us through how you arrived at Crime Story. What's the origin story there?
0: So from the time I started teaching, there was no English teaching position available, and so Jeff said, oh, "I'm going to throw you into how about junior science?" <laughs> and I remember his words saying, "It's just." Just follow the processes just like a crime scene. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it started with Barbie in the bathtub. Oh. I thought I had to teach observations and inferences to, I think, year seven science and the difference between them. I thought I might set up a little bit of a crime scene. So I went back home, I went through Chelsea's thing and found <laughs> her one and only barbie and I filled it with a little bathtub with red food colouring and different wow. things and, <laughs> and so I had to put it together with uh, all the different scientific things of what could have happened and kids just loved it so I did a few different variations Like, but everything I did was hands on. Mm. Mm. Years later I got the opportunity to train in um, project based learning right. and then I did my research into experiential learning mm. and I was head of English up at Kempsey and the boss said right you can have a, have a run your own thing for a week. This is project-based learning week. You can run your own thing. So I had a number of kids come in from Year 7 basically through to Year 11. A couple of them were flat-out illiterate. Right. We're going to learn to write. Yeah. um, And we're going to do it with the crime scene. And that won them over. Yeah. And we would do things. I'd park my four-wheel drive in the bush. i put some tape around it said, right, They've escaped from there. They've done a stick-up at the bank. Where did they go? So we're running through the bush following natural paths, but we're writing as we go and recording. What do you see? What do you feel? What do you hear? Hmm. It was hands-on. And they come up with some of the most incredible stories. And so we did that. We made our own props. We would get bits of cardboard and we made gold bars for the bank robbery. We jumped out windows carrying gold bars. We did footprints in the sand and did plaster cast spraying and trying to match the shoe print. And this idea had been building and building and I would be yeah. trying this in class in every element and I got to a point saying if if we go full on with this, we've we've got an idea and we had some great supporters and so we committed huh. to it. Amazing. And earlier this year went full time with it.
1: Oh, great. Hearing you talk about like project-based learning and experiential learning, I actually read, I think it was a blog post that you wrote where you called it play-based learning. Yeah. And that really sort of struck me about what it is because we, we so accept and just take it for granted that like, small children like my kids are at preschool and it's all play-based learning. And we just accept that, yeah, that's how the kids learn best. When do we decide that that's no longer the I way know. that we learn? Mm.
0: And, and that's what that blog was about, the fact that they're researching for adults because we used to do simulation training in the police, which yeah. is a play-based thing as well, right. and kids do it. But the high school have missed out completely. Yeah, And that's some of the research that I'd love to head towards a PhD at some stage and, and do research in to that because, mm. yeah, it's it's just high school and you see the statistics about engagement, it drops away increasingly, mm. the engagement factor as we progress further and becomes more prescriptive. Mm. But just because we have an HSC and a curriculum doesn't mean that we can't be a, a little bit more engaging sure. and involved with that. I know it takes time and we've got the benefit. We just rock up to a school, right. we've got everything ready to go, it's a shot of adrenaline for the school, for the teachers. Yeah, yeah play-based learning and... Look at kids with – like I always look at the, the kids who play soccer you know, and how often they practice those right. drills and yeah. they mm. do it and they're playing but mm-hmm. they're learning from doing that. You put it into a game, something that's fun and enjoyable because yeah. you've got to get them through the door of your classroom to begin with. So make it fun and they will learn and yeah. problem solve as they go. Yeah. So that's what you do. You take your crime story to a school. Yeah. Yes, we go to every, every school, any school that wants us, we'll go right. there. We so travel. How many have you done so far? Since March we've now done about twenty yeah. and next term we have only got one week left booking in for next term. Wow. It's it's going gangbusters and amazing. we're going as far as, as Finlay on the border, of Riverina. <laughs> Been to Finley. Um Dubbo, up the coast, Sydney, wow. you name it, we're Okay. Amazing.
1: It's not just schools though, is it? It's also like you will work with businesses and do almost, is it like a team building sort of?
0: Yeah, so we're heading into the corporate structure and we'll do team building and communication. The one take home that we used to see in the police, I actually was only a trainee detective at the time. We're working on a murder and a very senior sergeant from Homicide was out helping with with us. He said to me, Luke, what do you think? And I said, oh, I've got nothing to offer. I'm only an A-lister trainee. Yeah. He goes, I don't care, you're part of the team, you've got something to contribute. yeah. And it made me realise that we all have those different perspectives. Mm. It doesn't no yeah. matter how seemingly invalued or junior you are. Mm-hmm. And so when we do this in class, quiet kid in the corner of the room but mm-hmm. an incredible wealth of knowledge mm-hmm. um, and, you know, you get your, your class hotshots who do all the talk and think they know it all and then you put this scenario in front of them. And then you see the kid from the corner come out, cracks, solves everything, yeah. and, and everyone's suddenly listening to them. Yeah. And in a business yeah. perspective, well, you'll often get levels of management who perhaps aren't quite in touch with the front of house workers and things yeah. like, and yeah. see how much they can contribute. Yeah. And, and it teaches them to listen to each other and work yeah. as a team with your different strengths, put them in a crime-solving situation, and you make them listen to each other. Right and worked it out they get this different appreciation yeah um, of of their colleagues
1: Thanks, Luke.
0: Thank you very much. It's yes, been awesome. Thank and, uh, you. Yeah.
1: Thanks for being prepared to be vulnerable about that. It's such an important topic. Probably have to book you for like a some sort of.
0: Book you in advance now for a Yeah, team return. building exercise. Get your people to contact my people. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> sure, <definitely. laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming in. Um, we will put all the links on the show notes to everything that we've talked about and we will catch you next time on Enables. See ya. Bye.
0: This episode is sponsored by Ability Advocators, high-quality, personalised supports in disability and mental health.